If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as usual by my partner in banter, Mr. Daniel Feinberg, our chief TV critic. What's up, Dan? Oh, you know, just uh, reaccustoming myself to Los Angeles after a few days in in Austin over the weekend. Uh, we definitely want to start by thanking the wonderful people who attended our first ever TV's Top 5 live podcast in Austin. It was, I, w- I would say it exceeded all of our expectations and, and made us rather desperate to go and do more of those. Yes, if ATX were every weekend, just sign me up to do it live every week. It was so much fun. And the questions that we had during our live mailbag segment were really thoughtful and smart. And we want to thank our special guests, ATX co-founders, Emily Gibson and Caitlin McFarlane, and NBC's heads of scripted, Lisa Katz and Tracy Pacosta for joining us. The conversation was lively and, and just everything we that I could have hoped for and so much more. And we loved, of course, also hearing from those of you who had been at the podcast and then came and said hi to us uh, during the weekend in, in ATX. It really, it made us feel good and that's always nice feeling good. Anyway, I don't know where that went. <laughs> yes, and Dan, I think I'm going to credit that last one part to the fact that you got stuck in Austin for an extra two days. Yes, that was not the fault of any of our listeners. It was the fault of American Airlines, but yes. So we appreciated having all of you there and we appreciated the Q&A and as we always say, if you want to participate in our regular mailbag Q&A, you can always email us at tvstop5 at thr.com and I'll repeat that again at the end of the podcast. Yes, and before we get into to this week's five, let's dive into some of the headlines from the week. A female-focused take on Dune has been picked up straight to series for Warner Media's forthcoming streaming service, with the same creative team from next year's feature film attached. Sandra Bullock is developing a 1980s set college dramedy for Amazon based on her life, with John Legend attached to exec produce. Netflix has renewed David Fincher's animated series Love, Death, and Robots for a second season. Sci-Fi is working on a Krypton spinoff featuring DC Comics character Lobo. Sheriff Lobo? Sheriff Lobo. With the actor set to reprise his role in the potential offshoot, which is, we should note, in development. Tracy Ellis Ross will voice the lead character in a Daria animated spinoff as MTV Studios looks to build that franchise into a multiple series and feature film universe, which not something I would have expected, a Daria universe. I have been living in a Daria universe for 30 years now, Leslie. It's it, If I didn't expect it, I've been hoping and, and bring it on, though, as always with such things, there's the terror of of destroying something that uh, that I take very personally and meaningfully, but I know many people do, and I assume the people involved in the spinoff will as well, and I am all for it because Daria is fantastic. Yes, and we should note, no network is attached just yet. And rounding up this week's headlines, in the more surprising news, an unknown number of actors were disqualified by the TV Academy for block voting. I, we There's so much more that we're going to have to hear about this story. Our colleague Mikey O'Connell, sorry, our colleague and frequent podcast guest Mikey O'Connell broke the story, and it's Clearly fascinating. I will be very interested in hearing more details because it sounds like something that I think we probably assume happens all the time. So I'm looking forward to hearing what exactly they did that was egregious enough to actually get caught and penalized and I can't imagine it will make any difference whatsoever. But Emmy voting, it's it's a thing right now. So vote early, often. Yes, but don't block vote. <laughs> yes, apparently. Don't don't tell people no quid pro quo in your voting, Emmy voters. Yes. Well, that takes us to our first segment. Number one. Leading off this week, let's talk about some surprising renewals and final season announcements. Last week, THR broke news that The Good Place would end with its previously announced fourth season. As Mike Show revealed, he knew as far back as season one that this was not a show that was going to be around for more than, as he said, three or five seasons. Meanwhile, Comedy Central announced that Critical Darling Corporate would return for a third and final season. The final season part to me, Dan, is what was surprising because season two has the very, very rare 100% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. And 
I don't know that, you know, we can get get into that in a second. But elsewhere, Netflix renewed Natasha Leone led comedy Russian Doll for a second season after what felt like a very closed ended run. I mean, Dan, a lot of this is surprising here. I think it's interesting. I th- I'm going to go with interesting more than surprising, but it can be either one. No, uh, you had a very good interview with Mike Schur about The Good Place and about the decision to end after the fourth season. And I think it's been particularly interesting how we've kind of changed the conversation about that show, because the first season was not particularly high rated. And I think there was, I don't know if there was uncertainty if it was going to get renewed, but people were like, okay, I could see a world in which somehow this was a one and done show and suddenly now three seasons later and we're looking at it as a NBC probably would have loved to have had additional shows and I think that in your interview Mike goes into very interesting and reasonable detail on kind of explaining how a show that where when you look at its live ratings you get not even at this point the smallest portrait of how big the audience is I think that as he points out the Good Place is a hit for NBC, and they really would have probably kept this show going as long as they wanted to. So good on him for actually knowing what the length of the show is supposed to be. And so ultimately it ends up being kind of almost a, a you know, a cable or streaming comedy run as opposed to a network run. It's a, it's a different kind of model that they were operating under. Yeah, it's half the amount of episodes needed for syndication, which is the the gold standard if you're a broadcast show. When you get to about 100 episodes, this is why, if you remember last season or two years ago at this point, Gotham getting renewed for an abbreviated final season was a huge deal. Warner Brothers fought like hell to get that show renewed because the last batch of episodes got it to that 100 episode threshold, meaning that studio could sell Gotham to syndication, to TNT, to whatever cable network as a library play. And that's a massive revenue stream for a lot of these studios. So with The Good Place ending after 50 some episodes... It doesn't tee up that show for syndication. Not in a traditional way, but I feel like we're probably at this point fair enough and far enough past the 100 is kind of magical thing. And yet we still repeat it. I mean, it's there's no question it is it remains a part of the conversation. But to me, it's a little bit like November and February sweeps in that it's a thing that still exists. It's a thing that is definitely real. It's just not a thing that means as much as when we started doing this job. And right. But it's also it also means that that's a lot of revenue that that the cast and the creators and the producers and all the production companies involved will not get unless there's a way that they can sell it as a in a different model. I mean, but this is the universe we're living in where models continue to evolve every single day. Yeah, and I will be sad to see The Good Place go, but, you know, even from any conversations I had with Mike at the start of the first season, I I think they knew that this was a show that they were to some degree lucky to have on at all and that they were lucky to have on broadcast and they were lucky that people were watching and they were lucky they had this remarkable cast. And obviously it's not luck. It has a lot to do with it being at times a fairly brilliant show, but they knew they weren't making a Big Bang Theory And there was no way that they could have forced it into becoming that. And so I I trust that they are taking the show to the place they want to take it. And that's all that I honestly ever want for any showrunner who makes a good show. So in the same way that if Natasha Lyonne and the team of Russian Dolls say that they have additional seasons, it's probably my job to go, Okay, cool, go and do that, even if. When I got to the end of the finale of Russian Doll, my reaction was, okay, that was absolutely perfect. It resolved things in a way that I'm satisfied with. It didn't force me to tolerate or believe answers that would have been too mechanical or too concrete. It simply put me in a place where, okay, I buy that was the story they wanted to tell. And that's the only reason I've ever been cautious about a second season is because the first season ended so well and left me not wanting anything. And that is so rare that you're always it's always dangerous when you reopen the door. And so that is that is my only nervousness about another season of Russian Doll is it ended so well. I didn't need any more. So now what? Yeah, I mean, that's very different from shows like Big Little Lies and 13 Reasons Why, which, of course, are based on source material. But those were originally picked up as closed ended series. And when they both took off, became, you know, in in the case of Big Little Lies, became an awards darling. 13 Reasons Why allegedly became one of Netflix's most watched originals. Not that we would have any information to back up those claims. But those were shows that came out with second seasons that nobody expected. But unlike those, Russian Doll, you know, producers Natasha Lyonne and Amy Poehler and Leslie Helen 
pitched this as a three-season show to Netflix. So this was always the plan in the larger sense. I think they just needed to see if it could cut through. And it's become obviously central in a lot of critical conversations. Probably has some awards buzz going for at least Natasha Lyonne and some of the writing. But yeah, I mean, you know, Leon told uh, THR's Jackie Strauss that that she had ideas ranging from an anthology to staying on board with her character of Nadia. We don't have a lot of details on what season two will be, but we know that this was that they have a plan. And probably for me, an anthology is kind of a best case scenario if they wanted to maybe have Natasha Leon either as her character or maybe as an entirely new character. I would watch that. No, it's look with 13 reasons why that was I don't want to say it was greediness, but they saw something that was successful and they kept going with it. The second season of 13 Reasons Why should be a cautionary tale for everybody. It was it was horrible. It was unnecessary. It justified its existence in no particular way. And and coming back for a third season. And coming back for a third season. You know, it's that that makes me uncomfortable. And that is always kind of a cautionary tale that I hope that people will avoid. On the other hand, even though I liked the first season of 13 Reasons Why, I didn't like it anywhere near as much as I liked the first season of Russia. And all. So for me, I guess it should come down to faith. And do I have faith in these people? And I probably should, but I can, I'm still allowed to have concern, darn it. I'm still allowed to say, you gave me a perfect experience. Yes, I'm fine with being with you guys, but uh, don't ruin perfection. <laughs> yeah. You know, let's wrap up the segment and talk about corporate just a little bit here. So corporate season two finale drew 171,000 total live viewers. And of course, we're, you know, where that's not counting digital plays where Comedy Central is, is particularly strong. But I mean, I, I was surprised for one. You know, this was a show that cut through that had some critical support. And from everything that my sources are saying, they decided to give it a third and final season so that the creators could end the show, give it a proper conclusion. But they're canceling it because no one's watching. And I think that's probably the the way these things should ideally work if you're a big enough corporation that you can afford to to kind of say, OK, look, here's your final season. Do what you want. <laughs> don't don't introduce CG dragons in this final season because <laughs> you don't have the money for that. But no, it's if you're Comedy Central, you should be able to do this to say, OK, this is a, this is a show that has a passionate audience and that down the road, I think people will watch the two or three seasons of corporate and say, OK, this was a show that in many, many ways was ahead of the curve in terms of how people work and you know, 21st century America. I think that it is definitely a show that has a comparable resonance to an office space or the office or even several shows that don't include the word office in the title. Uh, yeah, I think I think it's it's good that they're doing this. Look, there it was always going to be a particular and peculiar show and the audience was always going to be not vast. But I do think ultimately a lot of people will find this show. And so it's better for Comedy Central to have it in the library as a finished show. Yeah. I also think, you know, it, to me, it reminds me of when John Landgraf over at FX came out and said when he in explaining how a show gets renewed in this peak TV era, where the audience gets a vote, the critics get a vote and the executives get a vote based on the strength of the creative and the pitch that they know for the upcoming season. And but that's not necessarily true for every outlet anymore. It is such, not. As, such as we've seen with with corporate and Comedy Central. And John Landgraf likes to make sure that he makes critics feel loved and bless him for that. When we had Lisa and Tracy on our podcast just last week, live from Austin, they listed the various factors that go into their decisions, and they did not feel the need to uh, to tell me that my vote counted, and that's entirely reasonable as right. well. But the broad, that's a broadcast show, and it's on a little bit of a different model. But yeah, I, but we digress. Well, that feels like a good note to wrap things up and take it to our second segment of the week. Number two. A warning. This segment includes some language that is not suitable for all listeners. Batting second this week, it's June, which means it's Pride Month. I, for one, am very excited. It's always wonderful to see a lot of rainbow flags all over my social media feed and a lot of people just, you know, who are in the community celebrating and supporters really just being vocal about how much things have changed. It's it's honestly, it's refreshing. And honestly, I really wish every month were Pride Month. But to talk about Pride Month and the way same-sex stories are told on television, including love scenes and the evolution with shows thanks to, you know, like Pose and Vita and so many others, we're pleased to welcome Vita showrunner and creator Tanya Siracho to the podcast. Welcome, Tanya. Hola. Buenos dias. Good morning. Hello. How are you doing, Tanya? Thanks for talking with us today. I'm good. 
I'm good. I'm having my coffee. I'm talking to y'all. It's pride. It's fantastic. And you and the cast of Vita are grand marshals at the San Francisco Gay Pride Parade at the end of the month. That's incredible. The mothership. I know. I am having a dress made, like designed by a uh, Latinx designer. And I was like, can it be like the Hunger Games when I turn? Can rainbows come out? So I don't know if he's going to be able to manage that. But the dress is a giant rainbow. I don't know. I, I don't know. He showed me the um, he showed me the drawing, and this girl has like cinch waist. I was like, "You're gonna, that's not gonna look like that on me." But if I twirl, will rainbows come out? That was my question. That sounds incredible. I, I think in our current streaming, binging, etc., TV universe, it's often hard to know when you're finding an audience and when you're making an impact. When you get an opportunity like that, how how gratifying is it to sort of see that you're making a difference? Well, I feel like the queers have seen us from go, you know, that that doesn't mean that all other concentric circles of, of viewership have found us yet. But f since last year, that was the first, especially brown queers were the f ones that were like, I have never seen myself on television or represented that way. Uh, we had a scene last year where we found out that Emma was a femme top. And she was, you know, she was uh, with a non-binary person. And that, so, like, that scene got a lot of attention from, from us, from brown queer community, um, because we've never seen something like that. And that, the conversations that it sparked were so just fulfilling, because I, you know, that's why you do it, for representation, you know? And then we got a little bit deeper into it, this uh, season two, um, not just with the sex scenes, you know, putting condoms on vibrators and that kind of thing, or washing hands right before having sex, you know, that kind of thing, but also like, conversations we were having. Yeah. And I mean, the fact that, that we're sitting here talking about a femme top being a storyline, you know, we've come a long way from, from Ellen's puppy episode, which aired in 1997. Sure. And, you know, to hear you use these terms and to be talking about this kind of community and this representation on television, you know, it's, it's illuminating for people who are not part of the community. It's, you know, yeah, I think so. Yeah, like, and, you know, those questions are welcome. I mean, I don't, I don't ever want to be didactic, and that's not why we do it. We follow the story, we follow the characters, you know? We guide ourselves through um, character first, and then we follow the, the stories that they're engendering. But to be a little teaching moment of, like, you know, I've had the conversation of the, of the uh, condom and the vibrator, and also the polemic, because, you know, not ever, in my room, it was like this three-day, four-day lively debate because I have some married ladies in my so I would never with my wife would I have used my the vibe I'm like no we're not we're saying that these women are sexually active that's what we're saying like this relationship is not a relationship yet you know like that so like uh, but that conversation is so interesting because what room would I ever get to have that conversation with a bunch of other queers you know and brown people too like because it's also that like added to it the dominant culture has had uh, some instances where, well, you just quoted one, like Ellen, like of representation, but sometimes, you know, we haven't. But like, this is a nice moment with posts in the mainstream and with us, not so much in the mainstream, I think, because our cable ways, you know, but like, it's, it's, it's amazing. Yeah, I mean, dating back to that Ellen episode, I mean, I say that because it was really groundbreaking. And I mean, to, to think that going back at, to 97, Disney ABC lost advertisers because Ellen came out on television and said, yep, I'm gay. And that was caused to lose advertisers. But I'm curious from from your perspective as a queer showrunner, how have you seen stories of LGBTQ characters really evolve over time? I mean, which shows are doing it right? What was the one that, that had the most impact on you? Well, out of four bosses, four showrunners that I've worked for, three were queer men, they were gay men. So I, when I got to Hollywood, I saw, oh, okay, they're queer white men. So I was like, okay, I can do that. I mean, meaning I was, I worked with one of them on looking and it gave me a lot of license for what Vida became uh, because uh, the way that Andrew Haight like sort of handled, cause he was a filmmaker first and foremost, I wasn't, but he handled San Francisco as like this other character. It sort of gave me license to create a love letter for Boyle Heights, but also just, um, that he had agency, then I was like, I, you know, I, I, it was a good model to follow. Now you add my femaleness and my queerness, and that's something else. But then, you know, at Stars, I had this covering executive whose name was Marta Fernandez, and that just kind of gives you the whole picture of like, oh, she 
didn't say a lot of no's when it comes to like cultural stuff because she knew she understood and we we both understood even if she might not understand like a femme top thing or something like that it was like she trusted so I do feel the queerness within Hollywood I did feel empowered from my experience and um I, I work with a lot of queer people it's like the combination of the brownness and being female you know and adding it all together it was like how how is that going to be but I do have to say that because I had a, a lovely relationship with this woman especially that first year because like I was nobody you know or I still am but you know like it, I was like who's this person coming in three years into her like stay in Hollywood with a capital H and you're giving her a show with no babysitter like literally giving me the reins and that's a testament to her faith that I don't know I don't know why she had this faith in me, but, and, you know, so I'm very grateful to that one person because, um, you know, she held my hand to through all the stuff like, oh, should I have to approve the budget? Oh, okay. You know, that kind of thing too. But thankfully I had seen, you know, looking was the most impactful of all my jobs in, in TV, not just because the cast and the, I mean, the whole and the entire writer's room was queer. And so again, that shorthand we have culturally in Vida, in a way, especially for queerness, it was, it was, we had that in, in looking. So I, I had that model, which I think was, I was able to hold on a couple of times when I was requesting things or pitching things. I was like, well, on looking, we tiki tiki or tiki 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 on looking, you know? And they're like, oh, okay. Well, they did that on looking. Yeah. You know, and, tiki tiki is my fill in the blanks. Sorry. <laughs> right, we got that. That was great. Um, you know, and you, you know, you mentioned looking, which is, of course, the, the great HBO comedy with Jonathan Groff that uh, I think it was yes. killed prematurely. Um, but at the same time, it, it told very specific stories. And, you know, you mentioned San Francisco being a character. You know, a lot of showrunners say that. But in this case, it really felt very, very true because that's a story that was very specific to that community. I'm curious, you know, we feel like we're in an era where being gay or queer intersects. I mean, there was an, an MTV comedy called uh, Faking It that told a story about of a teenager who was born intersexed. And it feels like, you know, we're in an era where being gay or queer is not the most interesting thing about these characters anymore. Like we have evolved that coming out no. stories are just no longer important. It's because it's, it's, we're so in the culture and it's, it's, you know, to see that represented on television is for me, it's, it's very refreshing, but I, I'm curious when, as a TV viewer, when did you notice that shift happen where coming out stories wasn't just the most interesting thing about LGBTQ characters? You know, we talked about this on looking a lot because um, some of us were not, millennials but then there were millennials and we were like especially younger millennials they don't often have coming out stories they're just like no we just knew and everyone like discussed their trauma you know oh my god this is my coming out story stuff and and you know that was um from a different generation and then the younger generation was like no and then they come equipped with like amazing terminology like when I, when i dated a, a trans non-binary person i did not have all the terminology, they were they them, but like all this like ways to describe them, you know, and now it's like second nature. It's it's amazing. It's it's amazing. I, that's not to say that we're still not fighting the same fights in spaces that are not safe. I, I don't want us to think that we're like, you know, how they're post-racial. We're like post-queer or something. I don't know. Um, right. We're, we're not, in an era where really roses had to quit Twitter after she was cast as the out lesbian superhero Batwoman on the CW show. Because yeah, she was getting so much, where, so, um, all the trolls brown, attacked trans her. Women are, are, brown trans women are still dying, you know, every week. So uh, th that we're still those people, you know, you know, but there's a lot of ages. I just saw this most, the most beautiful short pony boy about an intersex person this morning, too. And it's like even the fact that they were intersex was not the, the interesting part. It was the fact that they wanted love. This uh, lonely person wanted love, you know, but that's what we're searching for. Right. We're trying to get there to um and not normalize, but like, for like you said, like not for that not to be the most interesting thing, or like the coming out, like or the trauma to be the most interesting thing, and that's the same thing for brownness, you know. Like for so long, it was like, oh, these immigrants, oh, they, they don't speak, whatever the same tropes that we've had to deal with. But I think we're in a time that, um, especially because there's so much content, audiences want something more specific, more, um, just more detailed, more interesting, you know. 
Yeah, for me, it always goes back to the Harvey Milk quote, right? You know, if they know us, they can't discriminate against us. And I think that's also right. I mean, how Grey's Anatomy first approached. Here. Yeah. yeah, and I think that's how Grey's Anatomy first approached the character of Callie, played by Sarah Ramirez, where viewers met her and then learned that she was bisexual after they already loved her. And I think that was very smartly executed by Shonda. And now that the show is doing it again, or last season, they had to have a, an intern who happens to be trans and his transness is not the most interesting about him. It was the fact that members of the military and transgender characters are transgender individuals. It's hard, you know, the, his storyline was trying to correct his driver's license and he got broke. He was arrested for hacking the DMV to correct his driver's license. You know, it's like, these are right, the interesting right. stories. Exactly. Well, now we've talked a lot about Vita, obviously, and looking, and these are both premium cable shows. I'm curious as you sort of think projecting forward, do you ever give a consideration to what the basic cable or even network version of a show like this is, of, of what the FX version or even, heaven forbid, the ABC or NBC version of this kind of story is to kind of expand the visibility beyond just the premium cable? universe and its confines what is fx are they basic cable yeah they're basic um, cable. because i i freaking love fx <laughs> um and i enjoy it and i don't miss all the i mean because they cuss and everything it's just but maybe they don't do face sitting that's more cable i guess that's more that's more us <laughs> um or ass eating face sitting that's a little bit more us <laughs> but i love fx so like i i could seem you know, a version of Vida on FX. I mean, ultimately, Vida is a family show. It's about loss. It's about coming home. But I, the way we build it with such specificity, also, it's real. I think it's um, it's built like like a little movie, so it's like a little expensive and stuff. I don't know if, if it would exist on network, especially, like I said, the face sitting. I don't know. I don't know. Those, those parts, you know, the sex in, on, in Vida is not gratuitous. It's always for a purpose. It would be like a big part of the story that would be missing. So I don't I don't know about that. But streaming effects, I bet. Yeah. Yeah. I, I go back. There was a Ryan Murphy show that was it aired in uh, for one season in 2012 and 13 called The New Normal. Andrew Rannells and oh, Justin yes, Bartha played a married couple. It was produced and, and show run by two out showrunners, Ryan Murphy and Ali Adler canceled after one season in, in what wound up being a, yeah. a huge broadcast season that saw a lot of LGBTQ shows and characters really fall by the wayside. But that show, to me, was far ahead of its time. Yeah, I think some, some shows have been ahead of their times. Like, I remember that show. I remember the, the buzz it cost, too, because of, of what you just mentioned. Also the content, you know. But yeah, maybe they should, like, revive it somewhere. I would love that. Yeah. Well, Tanya, thank you so much for joining us and have an, an amazing time in San Francisco. Yes. Oh, my God. With my Hunger Games uh, rainbow dress. Yes. Uh, and also representing, you know, brown queerness. <laughs> thank you so much. And be sure to catch new episodes of Vita on Sunday nights on Stars. Thanks, Tanya. That takes us to our next segment of the week. Batting third, let's do a state of the network check in with BET. Number three. This week, BET announced that it will launch a streaming service in the fall as the Viacom-owned cable network officially throws its hat into the streaming wars. The service, which is, of course, near a deal with an executive to oversee it, will feature originals including Tracy Oliver's long gestating First Wives Club reboot and a Will Packer-produced comedy called Peachtree Place. The latter will be redeveloped with an edgier take for the streaming service, which will also include content from Tyler Perry, who inked a massive deal with Viacom back in 2017, but didn't kick in until May of this year. He will create original series and movies for the platform, as well as other Viacom outlets. And of course, the streaming platform will feature content not just from BET, but other Viacom brands as well, such as MTV, Comedy Central, and VH1. Dan, what do you think? Well, first of all, I think probably First Wives Club has gone through enough different twists and turns and machinations in its pre-production and gestation process that you want to take us through it because while it is not yet a designated survivor level of whatever this is a show that has gone through a lot of different forms and i'm going to be kind of amazed whenever we actually see it as a real thing at this point yeah of course it was originally developed for tv land with jenny bix attached as the writer and that was a script that was picked up and produced as a pilot for TV Land. Allison Hannigan, Megan Hilty were among the stars in that. It did not get picked up at TV Land. Instead, they redeveloped it. They brought in Tracy Oliver, who co-wrote Girls Trip. 
as a showrunner and her pitch for first the new first wives club 2.0 was to make it an inclusive take and they picked it up to pilot and then it moved over to paramount network after they cast it and they pick it up to series and then it goes from paramount network to bet as part of a big push for scripted originals at bet under that network's new president, Scott Mills, who repla- of course replaced Deborah Lee, who had been there for three decades. And it was one of the originals within the Viacom portfolio that he really fought to get for BET. And then, you know, this this is a show that, that, that's been in the can for, I think, a year plus. Production is done. They are done with it. It's basically sitting there waiting for a premiere date. And now it's going up on this platform that we know pretty much not a lot about. And I think it's obviously a brand name. And so that's the thing you want to have. And we've been talking, if you listen, an awful lot about all of these different streaming services and kind of how the two things you want to have when you're starting is you want to have a big brand that is splashy and and sticky, as Paul Lee might have said back in the day, <laughs> and tasty and delicious. You know, something that will actually get people in the door, but then you also want to have a library. And one of the things that's most interesting about this to me is that you have Tyler Perry but they don't have the Tyler Perry library. And that's the thing where that actually could be a differentiating factor. Like if you were to tell me, okay, here is a platform, it comes equipped with all of Tyler Perry's TV stuff, and perhaps maybe some of his movie stuff, I don't know, it's purely hypothetical and imaginary, I would say that was actually enough of a hook. Yeah, without knowing who produced a lot of the the Tyler Perry feature films, his TV series are owned over at OWN, which is a Discovery-owned cable network. So seeing stuff that's owned by a completely different company move over to Viacom, that's not going to happen. Oh, no, definitely definitely not. But that is still, as when I hear this news, I go, okay, will it have this crown jewel? And the answer appears to be not. Do we have any sense of why this is a thing that BET is doing as BET Plus rather than just a Viacom multi-network streaming platform of their own. I mean, we don't know a whole lot about it. I mean, this is something, you know, when I say BET announced, they didn't really. This is something, this is a story that I've been tracking for more than six months that came to light this week. Like everyone else, everyone's preparing for, for the new world. I mean, this is also a company that that is making a Viacom, which is making a massive play for streaming. I'm sure you've seen billboards around town for Pluto TV. I can't avoid them. They're everywhere. That's a Viacom owned unit, which there's Natalie, our colleague and frequent podcast guest, Natalie Jarvie, did a great take on on the stakes at Pluto over at THR.com. But look, this is, you know, you, you have to compete, you know, as all these companies have ramped up originals. You know, Netflix specifically has been has taken aim at pretty much everyone. Comedy Central, they do a bazillion stand up specials. They've taken aim at BET by creating content that is specifically targeting the African-American community, which is BET's obvious viewers. I mean, this is you know, it's a why not? It's this is a company that has to compete. And I think targeting it toward BET is probably the way that that Viacom can get this this portfolio, this streamer to stand out a little bit more. Now, what sense do you have of how BT, the on-air network, how its scripted brand is is shifting and evolving? Because they did have some shows, whether they were original or acquisitions. You know, The Game was a show that they picked up after it had been canceled. But Being Mary Jane was a show that had a, a big and passionate audience and that I feel like many in the critical community, myself included, probably slept on more than we should. But, you know, BT does come to press tour once or twice a year, and we see that they've been doing a lot of miniseries and whatnot. Does does it feel like they have a cohesive direction? Well, I interviewed Scott Mills, who took over, like I mentioned, for Deborah Lee last year. And in talking to him, he had a very clear mandate. He really wanted to ramp up premium scripted originals in the vein of the game and the new edition story, which is a big ratings hit for them, and being Mary Jane. And among the first series that he greenlit were the Boomerang reboot, Peachtree Place, which is moving to the streaming service, and American Soul. And Boomerang and American Soul were both renewed for second seasons. What I'm really curious to see is where they go next, because he's losing two of the scripted shows that he wanted on his network. And I think, as memory serves, he wanted six originals to air in 2019, and he just lost two of them to the streaming service. I mean, look, we don't know if it's going to be, if either of those shows are going to be exclusively on the platform, or if it'll be debut exclusively first on the streaming service and then air on the linear network, which I, I don't know why you would pay for a streaming service and then see it for free 
later. But the first thing that Mills told me is that the very first thing he did when he took over was he went, made a lot of outreach to some of the biggest names in the African-American community to come over to BET and produce their shows there. Not just that you can go to Netflix and you can take the money plays and you can go to HBO and you can do make all of this stuff. But don't forget about us. That was his pitch. And, you know, he's seemingly achieved it to uh, to some degree. I mean, Halle Berry came over and uh, Lena Waithe both are attached as exec producers on the Boomerang reboot. That's a big deal for them. It's a wait and see. We haven't really seen any big ramp up in new series orders for BET since he, he made his big pitch with Peachtree Place and American Soul and Boomerang. So I'm very curious to monitor what they do and how much content that they plan on picking up to do exclusively on the streaming service and what that means and how the linear net network is going to be impacted by that. So it'll be a wait and see because we're waiting desperately to talk to an exec who's in charge of this. So <laughs> we'll see. You say we. I think you are waiting desperately. <laughs> I'm very curious. You know, this is, you know, it, it's important to me to cover BET. And I think what they're doing with a new executive who doesn't necessarily have a creative background, you know, Scott Mills isn't necessarily a creative guy. He came over to BET as president after serving as Viacom's exec VP and chief administrative officer overseeing human resources, real estate, facilities and securities. So that's not necessarily a creative thing. But I think, you know, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to know that to program a network, you need big names. And I think that strategy of, of going out and doing on the ground meetings with some of the bigger, bigger producers in the community, that's a smart thing to do. So I, I'm very curious to see how this streaming platform will impact the linear network and where things go. That takes us to our fourth segment of the week. Number four. Batting cleanup. It's been a busy week for Quibi. Quibi, in case you didn't know, and seriously, why would you at this point, is a short-form video platform co-founded by Jeffrey Katzenberg. You've heard of him. And Meg Whitman. You've heard of her. The startup will launch in April 2020 with original content from A-listers that's designed to live on mobile platforms. Each series is being eyed to run between two and four hours long as a series, not as individual episodes. That would be crazy. Uh, with episodes running seven to ten minutes each. Quibi, of course, stands for Quick Bite. That's where it gets its name, Dan. Quick Bite. It's how, Quick Bite content. How old were you when you learned that, Leslie? Because I was this many seconds old. Uh, probably about six months ago. <laughs> oh, honestly, I had not paid. <laughs> My first question in this segment, without having read your introduction initially, was what the hell does Quibi stand for? There you go. And now we know. Um, also, among the powerhouses involved with this is our former boss, the amazing Janice Min. So we definitely want to acknowledge that uh, we're in the tank for Quibi. No, not really. We're not. But we do. We but do, we do have good, good confidence and, and faith in Janice. So. But yes. Yeah, so, OK, Quibi, quick bite. Wow. I had not known that before. Ten seconds ago has a slate of content from people uh, with big names. You might have heard from them like Guillermo del Toro, Paul Feig, Lena Waithe, who we're talking about in many, many segments this week, because good on her. She is striking while the iron is hot. And that is what you want yeah, to do. And she's making her uh, a show that she's very passionate about. It's a sneaker show. She's a sneakerhead. No, uh, I am 100 percent in favor of Lena Waithe going and working as many places as she possibly can while people are wanting to work with her. Also, Don Cheadle, who is very, very busy, and um, Mr. Steven Spielberg. And that is the big thing that was announced this week. Descri Plus, this mm. just in, Whoop. Idris Elba is doing a show for Quibi, this time about cars and stunting and, and stunt cars and which driver is the best. So it's kind of a competition show. Uh, but Idris Elba doing a show for Quibi. Sure. The, the let... Idris Elba do whatever he want business model did not work so well on that Netflix comedy that Idris Elba did. So it still has not been renewed. I, I think I've already uh, forgotten. Do you remember the name of the show? Oh, no. Uh, Good Luck, Charlie, I think. Or, or was that a something turn, on turn up, Charlie? There it is. <laughs> Good Luck, Charlie is a different show for a different demographic. But yes. So, yeah, I, I feel like Idris Elba is going to great lengths and pains to prove that we like Idris Elba in some ways and some things. But maybe we don't need to see everything on his mind. But look, if he's getting paid to do the things that he's passionate about good on him but, uh, and good on these platforms for letting people embrace what they want to do exactly so okay this week there was a lot of publicity about the spielberg horror series why were we talking about it as much as we were this week leslie well this is a short form show that he insisted viewers consume after the sun goes down 
And Quibi developed some software to allow that to happen, to monitor what time it was in whatever time zone viewers are going to watch this. And we should know Quibi doesn't launch until next year. Um, I believe it's April next year. But yeah, so Quibi designed software that, that only lets viewers watch after the sunset and before the sun rises the next day. And this, of course, became almost an instant meme. Yes, people in, in certainly in our Twitter world made many sarcastic jokes about how what Quibi had managed to create or craft was TV scheduling. I would say it's maybe not even that specific because TV scheduling, as as many of our listeners will know, is a complex art form. This is not even complex. This is kind of blunt instrument. This is just creating prime time, basically. It's creating a time slot. So this is this is working backwards. We've talked frequently about how we think the evolution of streaming is likely to eventually lead to basically a streaming form of cable. This is the evolution of short form or streaming viewership in which they're going to encourage people to tune in regularly in a time slot. And so it, it feels like old business model that it's being hailed as a new business model because Steven Spielberg. Yeah. And, and by tune in, we mean on your cell phone because Quibi is designed to be consumed on mobile platforms. So are you making a clarification that no one actually tunes in anymore and that back in the day, you used to have to tune into a channel, sometimes involving antennas and other strange things that the kids today know nothing about. It's an antiquated terminology that no one knows, just like when you tell someone that you're going to dial them up. Yes, Dan. Excellent. <laughs> I'm, I'm attempting to explain for our younger listeners who don't know what tuning in even means. Yeah, but look, the business model is interesting. There's a lot of money that they've raised to, to back this platform. They've got some of the biggest minds in the industry attached to it. And, and look, Dan, I mean, you, of course, are not the perfect case study because you watch everything and you watch on screeners, on your laptop, on, on Apple TV. You know, for me, I Chromecast a lot of stuff from, from my laptop. I am 45 years old. I don't watch things on my cell phone unless it's baseball and, and a hot clip. But that's, for the most part, mobile viewing is, that's that's where everything is going right now. It is. And a couple of years ago, we had at Press Tour for the first time, the good people at Snapchat came to try to explain to us what they were doing. And thus far, Snapchat and its original programming has not taken over our demographic conversation. And we might need our listeners to tell us if, if wild and crazy and artistically revolutionary things are happening on Snapchat that we simply don't know about because we're not as young as we once were. Do you have Snapchat, Dan? I do not have Snapchat, Leslie. I invested a lot of effort into making sure that I cared about Twitter, much to my chagrin, and a little effort into making sure I cared about Facebook, definitely to my chagrin. Uh, Snapchat, I skipped. Instagram, I skipped. I, I would like to say that I'm waiting on whatever the next thing is, but I might just be waiting to die. Oh, Dan, <laughs> this got really dark. Please don't do that. Just facing my own mortality. No, <laughs> I occasionally watch videos, but no, it's the thing. It's the thing where you, where anytime you talk to a young person about how they watch TV, they say they watch TV on YouTube and that's not even TV, that YouTube is just the thing they watch. And whether it's YouTube originals, whether it's unboxing videos, whether it's Twitch videos of people playing video games. Every word I say makes me sound older and older and older and definitely makes me feel older. My 25-year-old cousin explained to me what unboxing videos are, and now I can't stop watching the baseball card unboxing videos. <laughs> okay, but the difference there is, and this is the thing, I will say that watching a baseball card unboxing or opening of a pack of baseball cards, that to me actually sounds entirely entertaining. But, but of course, I bid on them. You you know, you, there's things on eBay you can bid, like you get all the Dodgers out of a certain brand of box and then you watch the unboxing. And if you hit a Walker Bueller rookie, it's a, you know like a $700 card and you just want it because you bid $30 on eBay. For okay, that, was, Dodgers, that just went know. crazy. Whereas the idea of opening a pack of baseball cards... And just not knowing who's going to be in it, that I can understand. But most of these unboxing videos are people opening boxes where they know exactly what's inside them. Anyway, yeah, uh, Quibi, though, on the other hand, is clearly being designed by, well, it sounds like it's kind of a, an older person's idea of what younger of how younger people are watching TV. That's that's kind of my impression of it. And I wonder if that's a good or a bad strategy. It might be a good way of getting people like us to pay attention, but I don't know if it's a good way to get people who 
actually know what's happening right now in Snapchat. But they're getting, I mean, Quibi is getting a lot of top names and that's, that's the business model, big names, short form content. So if you've got someone who can do a two hour movie that, or a two hour TV show that's broken up into six and seven minute quick bites, see what I did there, Dan, then, I mean, why not do it? You know, are you going to watch a a show with, with Idris Elba, if it's a scripted show or like they just announced this week, a Don Cheadle show? I mean, why not? Probably. And definitely without a question. seven minute bites. Yeah. I will watch whatever Steven Spielberg is doing. It doesn't really matter what it is. So, but again, that's how you lure the olds. I don't know if it's necessarily how you, how you lure the youngs, but I guess we will, we will see what their strategy is on that front. And we will be talking more about Quibi in the future. And I will even attempt to remember that Quibi stands for quick bites. Yes. Also, Dan, did you just refer to us as the olds in in terms of demo? Yes. I believe that's what the youngs call us. Ouch. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Truly, Leslie, we are the greatest generation. This is a moment where I wish this podcast was live because the frown on my face and the heartbreak that I'm feeling by being described as as in the olds demo, it, it hurts, Dan. I, I have a birthday coming up, Leslie. I'm there feeling my mortality. I was saving that for the last segment, Dan. Ha! I scooped you on my birthday. Well, happy birthday, Dan. Let's take it as we do every single week on this podcast. We wrap up with our amazing Critics Corner with the one and only Dan Feinberg. Happy birthday, Dan. Happy birthday! I'm pleased to know you as a friend. You are a dear friend and a dear part of my family. Oh, I'm pleased to know you too. Thanks. Number five. Yes, lots and lots of TV this weekend. Yes, this week, Jet arrives on Cinemax. Los Espookies, which is super fun to say, debuts on HBO. Showtime City on a Hill, which you moderated at ATX. Brilliantly, Dan. HBO's Euphoria. Amazon debuts, speaking of uh, being a part of the olds, Too Old to Die Young. Netflix says farewell to Marvel with the final season of Jessica Jones. ABC's Grand Hotel finally debuts. And Good Trouble, The Detour, and Yellowstone return for new seasons on Freeform, TBS, and Paramount. Paramount Network, respectively. What you got? Exhaustion. <laughs> Good God. That just sounds like too much. Um, yes. Let's start by talking about Los Espookies, because I really enjoy saying Los Espookies. It comes from, among other people, uh, as executive producers, Fred Armisen, who people will know from Saturday Night Live. The other two creators are Julio Torres and Ana Fabriga. And it's just a... A lot of people are not going to be at all amused by Losa Spookies, but the people who are amused by Losa Spookies are going to be incredibly amused by Losa Spookies. That's what I want to say about Losa Spookies, which allows me to say Losa Spookies many times. Uh, no, it is a it is a loopy, sardonic, deadpan, laconic, weird, vaguely trippy little comedy. It made me laugh a fair amount. It's hard to explain its exact premise because its premise is not exactly its premise, but it involves a group of young friends in a uh, fictional or composite Latin American country who are in the horror business. They they stage spooky happenings for different reasons, including such genre classics as the inheritance scam, as in the five strangers spend a night in a haunted house and the one who stays the longest gets to inherit the house. They're entrusted with bringing the haunting to the house. And it is, it's extremely funny. It's extremely aware of genre tropes and plays off of them in very, very appealing ways. Uh, Julio Torres, one of the co-creators, has been a scribe on Saturday Night Live. He is so amazing at the the deadpan. Ana Fabriga is... She's like a silent comedian. She's so expressive and hilarious. It's it's a good show, and some people will not find it at all funny, and that's okay. I would compare it to something like Baskets or to What We Do in the Shadows in the sense that it is not going to be for everyone. And that's totally cool because, you know, some shows are trippy and strange and other shows are right down the middle with the, you know, an example would be City on a Hill, which is if you like Boston crime dramas, if you've read your Dennis Lehane, if you've read your Chuck Hogan, this is a show for you with a solid cast, including Kevin Bacon, Aldous Hodge, uh, Jonathan Tucker. And I, I don't think it really rewrites any of the rules of the Boston crime drama, but I think that it does some honor to them. I think Kevin Bacon's a lot of fun. I think that there are good things about it, and it has the chance to unfold as something interesting, but probably not 
revolutionary. I also really like Jet on Cinemax, which is just a great chance to see Carla Gugino be a badass. She is an actress who has had one of the most varied careers you could possibly have and hasn't always honestly been used by Hollywood to her strengths. As I said in my review, I've always thought that her best role was on ABC's Karen Sisko, a show that did not last very long. It didn't last a season. And yet the Elmore Leonard badass world was exactly the perfect venue for Carla Gugino. This is not literally an Elmore Leonard adaptation, but it's an adaptation by Sebastian Gutierrez of kind of the idea of an Elmore Leonard series. And it's sort of tough and pulpy and also very well-directed, colorful and stylish. Again, not rewriting any rules, but interesting and a little bit badass and fun. So there, there's some good stuff. And then if you really just want to be terrified by what the youngs are doing today, not to be confused with the olds, HBO's Euphoria will probably give you nightmares if you're a parent. My only question is whether it's a show that's intended for young people to actually see themselves reflected in the world or whether it's intended as a vehicle for parental paranoia. My own instinct might be that it's more the latter than the former, and I don't know that that's as good. It feels a little voyeuristic to me, but uh, our colleague, my partner in crime, Tim Goodman, adored it and was terrified by it and horrified by it. As a parent. As a parent himself. So... Yeah, I think I think that will be a primary response. I think Zendaya is great in it. I think it's a very interesting cast. I think it does a lot of provocative things. The question of whether it's a tiny bit voyeuristic and looking at things from the outside, that's going to be for every viewer to decide for themselves. And our my colleague Bryn Sandberg has an amazing take on the story on the show over on THR.com. I mean, I think the the subhead on the story is something, how many penises is too many penises? And the answer here is 30. Yes, I saw I saw several stories going around yesterday with people reflecting on the idea of a show with 30 plus penises and there is no question that there are penises aplenty in euphoria and you just have to decide if what you're looking for in your sunday night prestige tv is zendaya and wangs or something else yeah well I, that feels like a good place to wrap things up thank you for listening to tv's top five the hollywood reporters tv podcast dan and i will be back next week and until then dan if you like us, you should subscribe to us on all of your favorite platforms of podcasting and whatnot. If you really like us, you should rate us. If you really, really like us, you should review us. We appreciate it all. And we also really like to hear from you, whether you tweet at us. We're happy to answer questions and say hi to you on the tweeter. Um, but the tweeter, is that what the olds are calling it? That's what absolutely nobody is calling it. Sometimes I have to go off script. And if you have questions for us, I think probably we could be due for a mailbag segment in a week or two. And we've got a couple already and we could always use more. You can email us at TV's top five. That's the number five at THR.com. We'd love to hear from you. And with that, until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. If you're snacking on anything but tasty cake, you're making a huge Miss Cake. A fistful of chocolate-covered raisins? Miss Cake. A spoonful of peanut butter? Bigger Miss Cake. Or the worst Miss Cake of all, your kid's Halloween candy, and it's April. If it's not tasty cake, it's a Miss Cake. Because nothing satisfies like a perfectly sweet butterscotch crimpet. Or rich and creamy chocolate peanut butter candy cake. Tasty cake. Except no substitute. Thank you.